0: Here, Saints, you're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read-through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. large catechism of Dr. Martin Luther, the sacrament of the altar, and a brief exhortation to confession. Part 5. The Sacrament of the Altar. Just as we have heard about Holy Baptism, so we must also speak about the other sacrament, in these same three points. What is it? What are its benefits? And who is to receive it? And all these points are established through the words by which Christ has instituted the sacrament, Everyone who desires to be a Christian and go to this sacrament should know them, for it is not our intention to let people come to the sacrament and administer it to them if they do not know what they seek or why they come. The words, however, are these. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here also we do not wish to enter into controversy and fight with the defamers and blasphemers of this sacrament, but to learn first, as we did with baptism, what is of the greatest importance. The chief point is God's word and ordinance or command. For the sacrament has not been invented or introduced by any man. Without anyone's counsel and deliberation, it has been instituted by Christ. The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Creed keep their nature and worth, even if you never pray, keep or believe them. So also this honorable sacrament remains undisturbed. Nothing is withdrawn or taken from it even though we use and administer it unworthily. Do you think God cares about what we do or believe as though on that account he should allow his ordinance to be changed? Why, in all worldly matters, everything stays the way God has created and ordered it, no matter how we employ or use it. This point must always be taught. For by it, the chatter of nearly all the fanatical spirits can be repelled. For they regard the sacraments, unlike God's word, As something that we do now what is the sacrament of the altar answer it is the true body and blood of our lord jesus christ in and under the bread and wine which we christians are commanded by christ's word to eat and to drink just as we have said that baptism is not simple water so here also we say that though the sacrament is bread and wine it is not mere bread and wine such as are ordinarily served at the table but this is bread and wine included in and connected with God's Word. It is the Word, I say, that makes and sets this sacrament apart. So it is not mere bread and wine, but is and is called Christ's body and blood. For it is said, when the Word is joined to the element or natural substance, it becomes a sacrament. The saying of St. Augustine is so properly and so well put that he has scarcely said anything better. The word must make a sacrament out of the element, or else it remains a mere element. Now it is not the word or ordinance of a prince or emperor, but it is the word of the grand majesty, at whose feet all creatures should fall, and affirm it is as he says, and accept it with all reverence, fear, and humility. With this word you can strengthen your conscience and say, if a hundred thousand devils, together with all fanatics, should rush forward crying, how can bread and wine be Christ's body and blood, and such? I know that all spirits and scholars together are not as wise as the divine majesty in his little finger. Now here stands Christ's word. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you, this is my blood of the New Testament, and so on. Here we stop to watch those who will call themselves his masters and make the matter different from what he has spoken. It is true, indeed, that if you take away the word or regard the sacrament without the words, you have nothing but mere bread and wine. But if the words remain with them, as they shall and must, then by virtue of the words, it is truly Christ's body and blood. What Christ's lips say and speak, so it is. He can never lie or deceive. It is easy to reply to all kinds of questions about which people are troubled at the present time, such as this one, Can even a wicked priest serve at and administer the sacrament? And whatever other questions like this there may be. For here we conclude and say, even though an imposter takes or distributes the sacrament, a person still receives the true sacrament, that is, Christ's true body and blood, just as truly as a person who receives or administers it in the most unworthy way. For the sacrament is not founded upon people's holiness, but upon God's word. Just as no saint on earth, indeed no angel in heaven, can make bread and wine be Christ's body and blood, so also no one can change or alter it, even though it is misused. The word by which it became a sacrament and was instituted does not become false because of the person or his unbelief. For Christ does not say, If you believe or are worthy, you receive my body and blood. No, he says, Take, eat, and drink. This is my body and blood. Likewise, he says, Do this, i.e., what I now do, institute, give, and ask, you take. This is like saying, No matter whether you are worthy or unworthy, you have here his body and blood by virtue of these words that are added to the bread and wine. Note and remember this well, for upon these words rest all our foundation, protection, and defense against all errors and deception that have ever come or may yet come so we have in a brief way covered the first main point that deals with the sacrament's essence. Now, examine further the effectiveness and benefit that really cause the sacrament to be instituted. This is its most necessary part, so that we may know what we should seek and gain there. This is plain and clear from the words just mentioned. This is my body and blood given and shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Briefly, That is like saying, For this reason we go to the sacrament. There we receive such a treasure by and in which we gain forgiveness of sins. Why so? Because the words stand here and give us this. Therefore, Christ asks me to eat and drink, so that this treasure may be my own and may benefit me as a sure pledge and token. In fact, it is the very same treasure that is appointed for me against my sins, death, and every disaster. On this account, it is indeed called a food of souls, which nourishes and strengthens the new man. For by baptism we are first born anew. But as we said before, there still remains the old vicious nature of flesh and blood in mankind. There are so many hindrances and temptations of the devil and of the world that we often become weary and faint, and sometimes we also stumble. Therefore, the sacrament is given as a daily pasture and sustenance, that faith may refresh and strengthen itself, so that it will not fall back in such a battle, but become ever stronger and stronger. The new life must be guided so that it continually increases and progresses, but it must suffer much opposition, for the devil is such a furious enemy. When he sees that we oppose him and attack the old man, and that he cannot topple us over by force, he prowls and moves about on all sides. He tries every trick, and does not stop until he finally wears us out, so that we either renounce our faith or throw up our hands and put up our feet, becoming indifferent or impatient. Now to this purpose the comfort of the sacrament is given when the heart feels that the burden is becoming too heavy so that it may gain here new power and refreshment. But here our wise spirits twist themselves about with their great art and wisdom. They cry out and bawl, How can bread and wine forgive sins or strengthen faith? They hear and know that we do not say this about bread and wine, because, in itself, bread is bread. But we speak about the bread and wine that is Christ's body and blood and has the words attached to it. That, we say, is truly the treasure and nothing else through which such forgiveness is gained. Now the only way this treasure is passed along and made our very own is in the words, given and shed for you. For in the words you have both truths, that it is Christ's body and blood, and that it is yours as a treasure and gift. Now Christ's body can never be an unfruitful empty thing that does or profits nothing. Yet no matter how great the treasure in itself is, it must be included in the word and administered to us otherwise we would never be able to know or seek it. Therefore, also, it is useless talk when they say that Christ's body and blood are not given and shed for us in the Lord's Supper, so that we could not have forgiveness of sins in the sacrament. Although the work is done, and the forgiveness of sins is secured by the cross, it cannot come to us in any other way than through the Word. How would we know about it otherwise, that such a thing was accomplished Or was to be given to us unless it were presented by preaching or the oral word. How did they know about it? Or how can they receive and make the forgiveness their own unless they lay hold of and believe the Scriptures and the Gospel? But now the entire Gospel and the article of the Creed, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the forgiveness of sins, and so on, are embodied by the Word in the sacrament and presented to us. Why then should we let this treasure be torn from the sacrament? when the fanatics must confess that these are the very words we hear everywhere in the gospel. They cannot say that these words in the sacrament are of no use, just as they dare not say that the entire gospel or God's word, apart from the sacrament, is of no use. So we have covered the entire sacrament, both what it is in itself and what it brings and profits. Now we must also see who is the person that receives this power and benefit. That is answered briefly, as we said above, about baptism and elsewhere. Whoever believes the words has what they declare and bring. For they are not spoken or proclaimed to stone and wood, but to those who hear them, to those whom he says, Take, eat, and so on. Because he offers and promises forgiveness of sin, it cannot be received except by faith. This faith he himself demands in the word when he says, Given and shed for you. As if he said, For this reason I give it, and ask you to eat and drink it, that you may claim it as yours and enjoy it. Whoever now accepts these words and believes that what they declare is true has forgiveness. But whoever does not believe it has nothing, since he allows it to be offered to him in vain, and refuses to enjoy such a saving good. The treasure indeed is opened and placed at everyone's door, yes, upon his table. But it is necessary that you also claim it and confidently view it as the words tell you. This is the entire Christian preparation for receiving the sacrament worthily, Since this treasure is entirely presented in the words, it cannot be received and made ours in any other way than with the heart. Such a gift and eternal treasure cannot be seized with the fist. Fasting, prayer, and other such things may indeed be outward preparations and discipline for children, so that the body may keep and bring itself modestly and reverently to receive Christ's body and blood. Yet the body cannot seize and make its own, what is given in and with the sacrament. This is done by the faith in the heart, which discerns this treasure and desires it. This may be enough for what is necessary as a general instruction about this sacrament. What may be said about it further belongs to another time. In conclusion, since we have now the true understanding and doctrine of the sacrament, there is also need for some admonition and encouragement. Then people may not let such a great treasure, daily administered and distributed among Christians, pass by unnoticed. So those who want to be Christians may prepare to receive this praiseworthy sacrament often. For we see that people seem weary and lazy about receiving the sacrament. A great multitude hears the gospel. Yet because the nonsense of the Pope has been abolished and we are freed from his laws and coercion, they go one, two three years, or even longer without the sacrament. They act as though they were such strong Christians that they have no need of it. Some allow themselves to be hindered and held up by the excuse that we have taught that no one should approach the sacrament except those who feel hunger and thirst, which drive them to it. Some pretend that it is a matter of liberty and not necessary. They pretend that it is enough to believe without it. For the most part, they go so far astray that they become quite brutish, and finally despise both the sacrament and God's word. Now, it is true, as we have said, that no one should by any means be forced or compelled to go to the sacrament, lest we insist a new murdering of souls. Nevertheless, it must be known that people who deprive themselves of and withdraw from the sacrament for such a long time are not to be considered Christians. For Christ has not instituted it to be treated as a show. Instead, he has commanded his Christians to eat it drink it, and remember him by it. Indeed, those who are true Christians and value the sacrament precious and holy will drive and move themselves to go to it. We will present something on this point so that the simple-minded and the weak who also would like to be Christians may be more stirred up to consider the cause and need that ought to move them. In other matters, applying to faith, love, and patience, it is not enough to teach and instruct alone there is also need for daily encouragement. So here also there is need for us to continue to preach so that people may not become weary and disgusted. For we know and feel how the devil always opposes this in every Christian exercise. He drives and deters people from them as much as he can. We have in the first place the clear text in Christ's very words, Do this in remembrance of me. These are inviting and commanding words by which all who would be Christians are told to partake of the sacrament. Therefore, whoever wants to be Christ's disciple, with whom he here speaks, must also consider and keep the sacrament. They should not act from compulsion, being forced by others, but in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, to please him. However, you may say, but the words are added as often as you drink it, There, he compels no one, but leaves it to our free choice. I answer, that is true, yet it is not written so that we would never do so. Yes, since he speaks the words as often as you drink it, it is still implied that we should do it often. This is added because he wants to have the sacrament free. He does not limit it to special times like the Jewish Passover, which they were obliged to eat only once a year. They could only have it on the fourteenth day of the first full moon in the evening. They still must not change a day. It is as if he would say by these words, I institute a Passover or supper for you. You shall enjoy it not only once a year, just upon this evening, but often, when and where you will, according to everyone's opportunity and necessity, bound to no place or appointed time but the Pope later perverted this and again made the sacrament into a Jewish feast. So you see, it is not left free in the sense that we may despise it. I call that despising the sacrament if one allows a long time to elapse, with nothing to hinder him, yet never feels a desire for it. If you want such freedom, you may just as well have the freedom to not be a Christian and not have to believe or pray. One is just as much commanded by Christ as the other. But if you want to be a Christian, you must, from time to time, fulfill and obey this commandment. For this commandment ought always to move you to examine yourself, and to think, see what sort of Christian I am. If I were one, I would certainly have some small longing for what my Lord has commanded me to do. Since we act like strangers toward the sacrament, it is easy to see what sort of Christians we were under the papacy. We went to the sacrament from mere compulsion and fear of human commandments without natural longing and without love, and never thought about Christ's commandment. But we neither force nor compel anyone, nor does anyone have to do it to serve or please us. This should lead and constrain you by itself, that the Lord desires it and that it is pleasing to him. You must not let people force you to faith or any good work. We are doing no more than talking about and encouraging you about what you ought to do, not for our sake, but for your own sake. The Lord invites and allures you. If you despise it, you must answer for that yourself. Now, this is to be the first point, especially for those who are cold and indifferent. Then they may reflect upon it and rouse themselves. For this is certainly true, as I have found in my own experience, and as everyone will find in his own ease. If a person withdraws like this from the sacrament, He will daily become more and more callous and cold, and will, at last, disregard the sacrament completely. To avoid this, we must examine our heart and conscience, and we must act like people who desire to be right with God. The more this is done, the more the heart will be warmed and enkindled, so it may not become entirely cold. But, if you say, How can I come if I feel that I am not prepared? Answer. That is also my cause for hesitation, especially because of the old way under the Pope. At that time, we tortured ourselves to be so perfectly pure that God could not find the least blemish in us. For this reason, we became so timid that we were all instantly thrown into fear and said to ourselves, Alas, we are unworthy. Then nature and reason began to add up our unworthiness in comparison with the great and precious good. Then, Our good looks like a dark lantern in contrast with the bright sun, or like filth in comparison with precious stones. Because nature and reason see this, they refuse to approach and wait until they are prepared. They wait so long that one week trails into another, and half the year into the other. If you consider how good and pure you are and labor to have no hesitations, you would never approach." Therefore, we must make a distinction here between people. Those who are lewd and morally loose must be told to stay away. They are not prepared to receive forgiveness of sin, since they do not desire it and do not wish to be godly. But the others, who are not such callous and wicked people, and also who desire to be godly, must not absent themselves. This is true, even though otherwise they are feeble and full of infirmities. For St. Hilary is also said, If any one has not committed sin, for which he can rightly be put out of the congregation, and be considered no Christian, he ought not stay away from the sacrament, lest he should deprive himself of life. No one will live so well that he will not have many daily weaknesses in flesh and blood. Such people must learn that it is the highest art to know that our sacrament does not depend on our worthiness. We are not baptized because we are worthy and holy, nor do we go to confession because we are pure and without sin. On the contrary, we go because we are poor, miserable people. We go exactly because we are unworthy. This is true unless we are talking about someone who desires no grace and absolution, nor intends to change. But whoever would gladly receive grace and comfort should drive himself and allow no one to frighten him away. Say. I, indeed, would like to be worthy, but I come not upon any worthiness, but upon your word, because you have commanded it. I come as one who would gladly be your disciple, no matter what becomes of my worthiness. This is difficult. We always have this obstacle and hindrance to encounter. We look more upon ourselves than upon Christ's word and lips. For human nature desires to act in such a way that it can stand and rest firmly on itself otherwise it refuses to approach. Let this be enough about the first point. In the second place there is, besides this, command also a promise, as we heard above. This ought most strongly to stir us up and encourage us. For here stand the kind and precious words, This is my body which is given for you, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, I have said, are not preached to wood and stone but to me and you, Otherwise, Christ might just as well be silent and not institute a sacrament. Therefore, consider and read yourself into this word you, so that he may not speak to you in vain. Here he offers to us the entire treasure that he has brought for us from heaven. With the greatest kindness, he invites us to receive it also in other places, like when he says in St. Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is surely a sin and a shame that he so cordially and faithfully summons and encourages us to receive our highest and greatest good, yet we act so distantly toward it. We permit so long a time to pass without partaking of the sacrament, that we grow quite cold and hardened, so that we have no longing or love for it, We must never think of the sacrament as something harmful from which we had better flee, but as a pure, wholesome, comforting remedy that grant salvation and comfort. It will cure you and give you life both in soul and body. For where the soul has recovered, the body also is relieved. Why then do we act as if the sacrament were a poison, the eating of which would bring death? To be sure, It is true that those who despise the sacrament and live in an unchristian way receive it to their hurt and damnation. Nothing shall be good or wholesome for them. It is just like a sick person who on a whim eats and drinks what is forbidden to him by the doctor. But those who are mindful of their weakness desire to be rid of it and long for help. They should regard and use the sacrament just like a precious antidote against the poison that they have in them. Here, in the sacrament, you are to receive from the lips of Christ forgiveness of sin. It contains and brings with it God's grace and the Spirit with all his gifts, protection, shelter, and power against death and the devil and all misfortune. So you have, from God, both the command and the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Besides this, from yourself you have your own distress, which is around your neck. Because of your distress, this command, invitation, and promise are given. This ought to move you, for Christ himself says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, he means those who are weary and heavy laden with their sins, with the fear of death, temptation of the flesh, and of the devil. If therefore you are heavy laden and feel your weakness, then go joyfully to the sacrament and receive refreshment, comfort, and strength. If you wait until you are rid of such burdens, so that you might come to the sacrament pure and worthily, you must stay away forever. In that case, Christ pronounces sentence and says, If you are pure and godly, you have no need of me, and I, in turn, no need of you. Therefore, the only people who are called unworthy are those who neither feel their weaknesses nor wish to be considered sinners. But if you say, what then shall I do if I cannot feel such distress or experience hunger and thirst for the sacrament? Answer, for those who are of such a mind that they do not realize their condition, I know no better counsel than that they put their hand into their shirt to check whether they have flesh and blood. And if you find that you do, then go, for your good, to St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Hear what sort of a fruit your flesh is. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Therefore, if you cannot discern this, at least believe the scriptures, they will not lie to you, and they know your flesh better than you yourself. Yes, St. Paul further concludes in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. If St. Paul may speak this way about his flesh, we cannot assume to be better or more holy than him. But the fact that we do not feel our weakness just makes things worse. It is a sign that there is a leprous flesh in us that can't feel anything. And yet the leprosy rages and keeps spreading. As we have said, if you are quite dead to all sensibility, still believe the scriptures, which pronounce sentence upon you. In short, the less you feel your sins and infirmities, the more reason you have to go to the sacrament and to seek help and a remedy. In the second place, look around you. See whether you are also in the world, or if you do not know it, ask your neighbors about it. If you are in the world, do not think that there will be a lack of sins and misery, Just begin to act as though you were godly and cling to the gospel. See whether no one will become your enemy, and, furthermore, do you harm wrong and violence, and likewise give you cause for sin and vice. If you have not experienced this, then let the scriptures tell you about it, which everywhere give this praise and testimony about the world. Besides this, you will also have the devil about you, You will not entirely tread him underfoot because our Lord Christ himself could not entirely avoid him. Now, what is the devil? Nothing other than what the scriptures call him, a liar and a murderer. He is a liar to lead the heart astray from God's word and to blind it so that you cannot feel your distress or come to Christ. He is a murderer who cannot bear to see you live one single hour. If you could see how many knives, darts, and arrows are every moment aimed at you, you would be glad to come to the sacrament as often as possible. But there is no reason why we walk about so securely and carelessly, except that we neither think nor believe that we are in the flesh and in this wicked world or in the devil's kingdom. Therefore, try this and practice it well. Be sure to examine yourself, or look about you a little. And just keep to the scriptures if even then you still feel nothing you have even more misery to regret both to god and to your brother then take this advice and have others pray for you do not stop until the stone is removed from your heart then indeed the distress will not fail to become clear and you will find that you have sunk twice as deep as any other poor sinner you are much more in need of the sacrament against the misery which, unfortunately, you do not see. With God's grace, you may feel your misery more and become hungrier for the sacrament, especially since the devil doubles his force against you. He lies in wait for you without resting, so that he can seize and destroy you, in body and soul. You are not safe from him for one hour. How soon he can have you brought suddenly into misery and distress when you least expect it. Let this then be said for encouragement, not only for those of us who are old and grown, but also for the young people who ought to be brought up in Christian doctrine and understanding. Then the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer might be taught to our youth more easily. Then they would receive them with pleasure and seriousness, and they would so use them from their youth and get used to them. For the old are now nearly past this opportunity. So these goals and others cannot be reached unless we train the people who are to come after us and succeed us in our office and work. We should do this in order that they may also bring up their children successfully, so that God's word and the Christian church may be preserved. Therefore, let every father of a family know that it is his duty by God's order and command to teach these things to his children, or to have the children learn what they ought to know. Since the children are baptized and received into the Christian church, they should also enjoy this communion of the sacrament, in order that they may serve us and be useful to us. They must all certainly help us to believe, love, pray, and fight against the devil. A Brief Exhortation to Confession Here now follows an exhortation to confession. We have always urged that confession should be voluntary and that the Pope's tyranny should cease. As a result, we are now rid of his coercion and set free from the intolerable load and burden that he laid upon Christendom. As we all know from experience, there had been no rule so burdensome as the one that forced everyone to go to confession on pain of committing the most serious of mortal sins. That laws also placed on consciences, the heavy burden and torture of having to list all kinds of sins so that no one was ever able to confess perfectly enough. The worst was that no one taught or even knew what confession might be or what help and comfort it could give. Instead, it was turned into sheer terror and a hellish torture that one had to go through even if one detested confession more than anything. These three oppressive things have now been lifted, and we have been granted the right to go to confession freely, under no pressure or coercion or fear. Also, we are released from the torture of needing to list all sins in detail. Besides this, we have the advantage of knowing how to make a beneficial use of confession for the comfort and strengthening of our consciences. Everyone is now aware of this, but unfortunately people have learned it Only too well. They do as they please and apply their freedom wrongfully, as if it meant they ought not or must not go to confession. For we readily understand whatever is to our advantage, and we find it especially easy to take in whatever is mild and gentle in the gospel. But, as I have said, such pigs should not be allowed near the gospel nor have any part of it. They should stay under the Pope and let themselves continue to be driven and pestered to confess, to fast, and so on. For whoever does not want to believe the gospel, live according to it, and do what a Christian ought to be doing, should not enjoy any of its benefits either. Imagine they're wanting to enjoy only the benefits without accepting any of the responsibilities or investing anything of themselves. What sort of a thing is that? We do not want to make preaching available for that sort, nor grant permission that our freedom and its enjoyment be opened up to them. Instead, we will let the Pope and the likes of him take over and force them to his will, genuine tyrant that he is. The rabble that will not obey the gospel deserves nothing else than the kind of jailer who is God's devil and hangman. To others, To gladly hear the gospel, we must keep on preaching, admonishing, encouraging, and coaxing them to not forget the precious and comforting treasure offered in the gospel. Therefore, we here intend to say also a few words about confession, in order to instruct and admonish the uninformed. In the first place, I have said that besides the confession here being considered there are two other kinds which may even more properly be called the Christian's common confession. They are, a. The confession and plea for forgiveness made to God alone, and b. The confession that is made to the neighbor alone. These two kinds of confession are included in the Lord's Prayer, in which we pray, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and so on. In fact, The entire Lord's Prayer is nothing else than such a confession. For what are our petitions other than a confession that we neither have nor do what we ought, as well as a plea for grace in a cheerful conscience? Confession of this sort should and must continue without let up as long as we live, for the Christian way essentially consists in acknowledging ourselves to be sinners and in praying for grace. Similarly, the other two of the confessions, The one that every Christian makes to his neighbor is also included in the Lord's Prayer. For here we mutually confess our guilt and our desire for forgiveness to one another, before coming before God and begging for his forgiveness. Now, all of us are guilty of sinning against one another. Therefore, we may and should publicly confess this before everyone, without shrinking in one another's presence. For what the proverb says is true if anyone is perfect, Than all are. There is no one at all who fulfills his obligations toward God and his neighbor. Besides such universal guilt, there is also the particular guilt of the person who has provoked another to rightful anger and needs to ask his pardon. So we have in the Lord's Prayer a double absolution. There we are forgiven both our offenses against God and those against our neighbor, and there we forgive our neighbor and become reconciled to him. Besides this public, daily, and necessary confession, there is also the confidential confession that is only made before a single brother. If something particular weighs upon us or troubles us, something with which we keep torching ourselves and can find no rest, and we do not find our faith to be so strong to cope with it, then this private form of confession gives us the opportunity of laying the matter before some brother. We may receive counsel, comfort, and strength, when and however often we wish. That we should do this is not included in any divine command, as are the other two kinds of confession. Rather, it is offered to everyone who may need it, as an opportunity to be used by him as his need requires. The origin and establishment of private confession lies in the fact that Christ himself placed his absolution into the hands of his Christian people. With the command that they should absolve one another of their sins. So any heart that feels its sinfulness and desires consolation has here a sure refuge when he hears God's word, and makes the discovery that God through a human being looses and absolves him from his sins. So notice then, that confession, as I have often said, consists of two parts. The first is my own work and action, When I lament my sins and desire comfort and refreshment for my soul. The other part is a work that God does when He declares me free of my sin through His Word, placed into the mouth of a man. It is this splendid, noble thing that makes confession so lovely, so comforting. It used to be that we emphasized it only as our own work. All that we were then concerned about was whether our act of confession was pure and perfect in every detail. We paid no attention to the second and most necessary part of confession, nor did we proclaim it. We acted just as if confession were nothing but a good work by which payment was to be made to God, so that if the confession was inadequate and not exactly correct in every detail, then the absolution would not be valid and the sin unforgiven. By this the people were driven to the point where everyone had to despair of making so pure a confession, an obvious impossibility and where no one could feel at ease in his conscience or have confidence in his absolution. So they not only rendered the precious confession useless, but also made it a bitter burden, causing noticeable spiritual harm and ruin. In our view of confession, therefore, we should sharply separate its two parts far from each other. We should place slight value on our part in it, but we should hold in high and great esteem God's word in the absolution part of confession. We should not proceed as if we intend to perform and offer him a splendid work, but simply to accept and receive something from him. You dare not come saying how good or bad you are. If you are a Christian, I, in any case, know well enough that you are. If you are not, I know that even better. But what you must see, too, is that you lament your problem and that you let yourself be helped to acquire a cheerful heart and conscience. Moreover, no one may now pressure you with commandments. Rather, what we say is this. Whoever is a Christian or would like to be one is here faithfully advised to go and get the precious treasure. If you are no Christian and do not desire such comfort, we shall leave it to another to use force on you. By eliminating all need for the Pope's tyranny, command, and coercion, we cancel them with a single sweep. As I have said, We teach that whoever does not go to confession willingly and for the sake of obtaining the absolution, he may as well forget about it. Yes, and whoever goes around relying on the purity of his act of making confession, let him stay away. Nevertheless, we strongly urge you by all means to make confession of your need, not with the intention of doing a work by confessing, but in order to hear what God has arranged for you to be told what I am saying is that you are to concentrate on the word, on the absolution, to regard it as a great and precious, magnificently splendid treasure, and to accept it with all praise and thanksgiving to God. If this were explained in detail, and if the need that ought to move and lead us to make confession were pointed out, then one would need little urging or coercion for every one's own conscience would so drive and disturb him that he would be glad to do what a poor, miserable beggar does when he hears that a rich gift of money or clothing is being handed out at a certain place. So as not to miss it, he would run there as fast as he can and would need no bailiff to beat him and drive him on. Now suppose that in place of the invitation one were to substitute a command to the effect that all beggars should run to that place, but would not say why, nor mention what they should look for and receive there. What else would the beggar do but make the trip with distaste, without thinking of going to get a gift, but simply of letting people see what a poor, miserable beggar he is? This would bring him little joy and comfort, but only greater resentment against the command that was issued. In just this way, the Pope's preachers kept silent in the past about the splendid gift and inexpressible treasure to be had through confession. All they did was to drive people in crowds to confession, with no further aim than to let them see what impure, dirty people they were. Who could go willingly to confession under such circumstances? We, however, do not say that people should look at you to see how filthy you are, using you as a mirror to preen themselves. Rather, we give this counsel. If you are poor and miserable, then go to confession and make use of its healing medicine, He who feels his misery and need will, no doubt, develop such a longing for it that he will run toward it with joy. But those who pay no attention to it and do not come of their own accord, we will let them go their way. Let them be sure of this, however, that we do not regard them as Christians. So we teach what a splendid, precious, and comforting thing confession is. Furthermore, we strongly urge people not to despise a blessing that in view of our great need is so priceless. Now, if you are a Christian, then you do not need either my pressuring or the Pope's orders, but you will undoubtedly compel yourself to come to confession and will beg me for a share in it. However, if you want to despise it and proudly continue without confession, then we must draw the conclusion that you are no Christian and should not enjoy the sacrament either. For you despise what no Christian should despise In that way, you make it so that you cannot have forgiveness of your sins. This is a sure sign that you also despise the gospel. To sum it up, we want to have nothing to do with coercion. However, if someone does not listen to or follow our preaching and its warning, we will have nothing to do with him, nor may he have any share in the gospel. If you are a Christian, then you ought to be happy to run more than a hundred miles to confession and not let yourself be urged to come. You should rather come and compel us to give you the opportunity. For in this matter, the compulsion must be the other way around. We must act under orders. You must come into freedom. We pressure no one, but we let ourselves be pressured, just as we let people compel us to preach and to administer the sacrament. When I urge you to go to confession, I am doing nothing else than urging you to be a Christian. If I have brought you to the point of being a Christian, I have therefore Also brought you to confession. For those who really desire to be true Christians, to be rid of their sins, and to have a cheerful conscience, already possess the true hunger and thirst. They reach for the bread, just as Psalm 42 says of a hunted deer, burning in the heat with thirst. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. In other words, as a deer with anxious and trembling eagerness strains toward a fresh flowing stream, So I yearn anxiously and tremblingly for God's word, absolution, the sacrament, and so forth. See, that would be teaching right about confession, and people could be given such a desire and love for it, that they would come and run after us for it, more than we would like, that the papists plague and torment themselves and others who pass up the treasure and exclude themselves from it, Let us, however, lift our hands in praise and thanksgiving to God for having graciously brought us to this our understanding of confession. again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.